Welcome everybody to the Embodied Pathways podcast. On previous episodes, we've explored specific aspects of this very broad topic. So we've looked at focusing, nature connection, dance, psychedelics, authentic movement and meditation. But in this episode, we're going to step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture. So what connects all these diverse practices? We've got a fantastic guide on this journey of discovery. Don Hanlon-Johnson has spent over half a century studying how transformative body practices can enhance personal and social change. Don's work takes cutting-edge theory and develops it through experiential practice. And what emerges is a remarkable body of work on embodied consciousness and spirituality. Don is the author of numerous books and articles. He founded the first master's degree program in somatic psychology and is currently a professor of integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Don, it's uh, it's a great privilege to welcome you onto the Embodied Pathways podcast. Thank you, Adrian. I'm happy to be with you. There's a story that you tell in, in one of the the chapters that you wrote about transpersonal psychology, about this experience, having been years and years working, being a, a Jesuit practitioner, doing lots of meditation, and then you had a session with a, a Taoist. And I wonder whether that's a good place for us to open up. You could just recount that story of how that was for you. Sure, it's very strange to look back upon it. It was about 60 years ago. I'd been to Esalen. Um, it was a kind of a a concentrated education I got after 14 years of being in the Jesuits and meditating for several hours a day and months and uh, getting all this education. And uh, overnight, I went to Esalen and took LSD, and <laughs> that was the end, rock and roll and all mm. the rest. And strangely, so we, we had our theological studies, three years of theological studies at an old um, gold rush retreat um, one of the floods was when they built the railroads in California, had this beautiful estate in the Santa Cruz Mountains that the Jesuits bought. It was across from the, the wineries that made Jesuit wine. And um, above us was a little uh, zendo that had meditation every morning, and they were connected with Esalen. So my friends and I uh, would walk up there in the mornings, starting after our Esalen visit, and meditate there. And the strange thing that happened to me was, that's strange to think back on, is there was nothing new to me about Zazen. So we had in our, in the Western tradition, there are lots of teachings about sitting quietly and paying attention, careful attention to posture, breathing, all of the kinds of things that one does in Japan. <laughs> but suddenly it all came crashing home to me the um, consciousness opening of it. And what was different between the Zendo and the Jesuit place had to do with simple things like architecture, attention to dress, <laughs> attention to the atmosphere of the room, uh, the uh, kind of aesthetics. It was almost an aesthetic difference that 
we meditated kind of in our rooms, which was kind of funky. And we kind of, I was very sloppy about my sitting, even though I was taught not to be. I was very um, sloppy about my attention to standing and sitting and breathing. I was trying to do all of that. I was, I was doing all of that. And yet somehow it was not settled. And the only, um, only sense that I could make of that over the years was another conundrum where I had a student who was from Kyoto in our program. And I thought, oh, here's somebody who's going to have a lot of body awareness. So he had done sports all his life. He had done zazen all his life. And he had absolutely no ability to talk about any sensations in his body. Wow. So, so there's something about this connection that's strange and elusive. It's not the content of the teaching. It's the, how it's taken in. That insight took me into the next step for me was being rolfed right around that same time. And I realized how dense my body was, how unrevelatory my body was. And as the rolfer began to open my ribs and my lungs, I began to say, oh, that's what they're talking about. That's what's happening here. And I remember I became, over the years, I became a very close friend of Charlotte Selver, who lived right down the road from me and died when she was 103. And she, she always used this phrase, are you there for your breathing? Are you there for your sitting? And that question was so rich for me. I realized I hadn't been there really for my sitting. Mm -hmm. I had not really been there for my breathing. And that was a journey that took me quite a while, actually. It took me a long time to kind of get into that. I think it's very powerful because that journey from not being there for your body through all these different somatic practices, you came to that. I think people who've had that struggle are the ones that can teach the best. It's interesting because I, I one of the things that's miraculous to me now is, so I'm almost 90, and um, I feel better now than I did when I was 10 or 20 <laughs> uh, because I had um, very difficult births, a really horrible birth. I um, had a congenital spinal problem where the um, discs are overgrown with calcification. So I never had a spinal spine that moved. <laughs> and then I grew up with severe asthma. I couldn't do sports. I couldn't do anything. Uh, that involved exertion, <laughs> on and on and on. So my early life was very um, pathological. <laughs> it was, I, was, I had a lot of, um, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't do anything basically, except read. I, that was the great grace of being able to uh, read. So it's been kind of a miracle to me that here I am, all my friends are dying. And it's like I'm one of the few people left. And uh, I'm feeling great. I have a wonderful family and wonderful life. And oh, I'm looking I good. Live I live on the side of a mountain and I climb up the mountain all the time. And, uh, and 10 years ago, I fell off a cliff on the mountain and broke all my ribs. And here I am still, <laughs> broke my spine. So... So it's kind of strange. I feel it's a little bit odd. <laughs> and so I, and I, in relation to what you triggered me saying is that I feel I live my life backwards. You know, it took me a long time to figure this out. And thank God I lived long enough to figure out a lot of things that I just never got in my younger years. 
how would you sum it up? Is it a, is it a different relationship to the body? Certainly that, but I think it's, take that teaching about just the simple thing we began with, sitting. It took me quite a long time to grasp in my experience what was meant by paying attention to my sitting. I was just sitting. <laughs> there, there's a Jack Cornfield talks about, uh, there's a phrase that in, in practice that he talks about, soggy shamatha, where you sit, but really nothing's going on. <laughs> and it was a little bit like that. That's a good phrase for what I was doing for a long time. I mean, I you know, we did a lot of meditation. We did, well, 30-day retreats twice, 30 days in silence retreats. We Every day we started the day with an hour meditation in the morning before anything else. We had short meditation periods during the day. We had week-long retreats periodically. So I did a lot of meditation and read a lot of esoteric Christian texts from West, the Western tradition, monastic tradition, Benedictines and the Cistercians and Trappists. It's just, it seems quite simple to me, but uh, it took me a long time to learn the simple lessons and uh, here I am. <laughs> so. You mentioned some of the ritual work that you did and that sounded, that was that a, a way of accessing the body in a different way? Very much so. Yeah, that, that's a good point because one turning point early in my life was we lived, um, my father and grandfather, my family came in the gold rush to Sacramento and um, my both my grandfather and father built houses. So my father uh, grew up in the houses his father built, and I grew up in the, born into the house my father built in downtown Sacramento. And um, my father and my father's family had no religion. They were not, they just were not interested. <laughs> and my mother was an Irish Catholic, and her father was an immigrant from Ireland, whose mother died in childbirth. So if, if you know the, this little fact about the Catholics, in that era, you could not marry a Protestant or a non-Catholic unless you, the, the non-Catholic signed a contract that the child would be raised as a Catholic. And they got married in the priest's house. They couldn't get married in the church. So my mother, my father signed me over to my mother for my religious up, upbringing. And the reason I'm telling the story is so, I grew up the first many years going, our parish was the cathedral parish down by the state capitol. And this dull priest was huge cavernous imitation of the uh, Duomo in Florence, bad imitation of the Duomo. And um, this priest, the pastor, would just drone on like a drone. He just, he was this ghostly figure that just, so every every Sunday and holidays, my mother would take me to that place, and we'd sit in this cavernous place, cold and windy and ugly, and this priest would drone on about all these things that were totally meaningless to me. And then at one point, um, uh, I forget why, but just a half a block away from us was the border of the parish, the cathedral parish, and somehow I got to go to the Franciscan church, which is across this boundary. And they had kept the old rituals. They kept the old sacred rituals of Holy Saturday with a, you, everything is extinguished. There's no fire or anything. And it's like, that. that's a wonderful creation ritual where they 
create new fire, they create new water, they create, it's all this re, an enactment of recreating the world with ancient chants were just amazing. And I thought, wow, this is an amazing world here. This is fabulous. And so I probably was around seventh grade then. And so that was a big opening. And it was the only world that interested me <laughs> since I couldn't do sports or anything. I, it was it was like the world of novels. So I, I was immersed in it. it was a magic world. It was so much more appealing than the everyday world that mm -hmm. I couldn't deal with very well. So that was a big turning point, the ritual yeah. thing. That carried on and that eventually really drew me into the Jesuits. What's coming across when you're describing that ritual it's very sensual is that the yes that's right it is very sensual yeah the costumings are great i love the costumes that we put on you know you put on all these you, you didn't wear ordinary clothes you were they're all covered with laces and beautiful brocades and different colors for the seasons and it was great it was really a very wonderful part of the, growing up you know there's a there's a term you use consensual spirituality yes which which has that element of sensuality seems to be bound up in that in some way yeah i just have to say a parenthesis as i talk about all of this my my one of my oldest friends is joey brown who was governor for you know endless years in california and he was in my class in the jesuits and uh, a film pbs just did a film in his life it just, just came out a few weeks ago. I was talking to him yesterday, and he said, you know, when all said and done, this whole thing's about meaning. It's not about politics. <laughs> and it, it's like, because he, he's kind of held on. He's kind of been the person that's got all of us ex-Jesuits together over the years and stuff to many of them in state government and all that. And um, it is kind of amazing that he's held on to that thing in a very public way, the, the spiritual the spiritual rudder that got us all on this path. It was very profound and and binds us a lot. One of the key themes that you talk about that runs through a lot of your work is, is this, um, the difference between alienation and authenticity. Mm. Does yeah. that weave in here somewhere? Uh, big time. <laughs> big time. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Big time because that's, that opens goes to the other doorway which was people like carl rogers and uh, well especially carl rogers so uh, meeting carl rogers was a huge bomb in my consciousness terrifying i i, I still to this day i look back and i said i was terrified to be with the rogerians and, and, and what i was terrified of was because nobody was talking very much and so i would have to talk right and everything I, I felt, everything I said, it was just silly. It was just <laughs> ridiculous. It was trying to do this or that. And um, and Carl just, you know, he just listened. I thought, I just, it was just so frightening to me. You know, I remember doing a, a, a three-day marathon where we were up for you know, 24 hours in the room together. And he probably said 10 words. <laughs> My God. And it was so frightening because what I realized is it was just babble. I just babbled and everybody in my world babbled. And um, it's no wonder we couldn't uh, sense our bodies is because we were too busy talking. <laughs> so was that the beginning? Was that the first inkling that there was something Rogers was doing 
this body that was being burned? Yes, uh, it, that's right. And it was before um, this other breakthrough with Esalen and uh, the meditation experience. But that was the opening. That, actually, that that was really the beginning, was with Rogers and Rogers' people at uh, what's now Loyola Marymount, where I did my first teaching stint. Uh, and philosophy, I must say that philosophy was also really important here and still more so ever than now. It's like, I think... We're still in Athens with the sophists. I mean, it's like, it's just like, here we are again. You know, did anybody learn anything in fifth century Greece? I mean, it's like crazy. People were just babbling bullshit all the time. Nobody said, what's the basis for this? So that was a very big breakthrough. Reading the dialogues of Socrates, of Plato were huge breaks for the apology and all of that. Uh, and at the same time, meeting Carl Rogers, who seemed to me like a modern Socrates in the sense of just sitting there and saying, well, what are you talking about? What do you want to say here? <laughs> really cutting to the chase. Yeah. I, I'm very grateful for the Jesuits for all of that. Thank God I became a celibate and I didn't get married when I was out of college. It would have been a disaster. I, mean, I wouldn't know what, what on earth to do with that. <laughs> Philosophy's been a, a big part of your journey, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a really big part. Of it. And if I say that, I really, it's, now it's very fresh because I really do think we're, it's very much like the sophist period in Greece. I think it's just, there's no basis of, reliability of what people were saying and on the other hand amazing stuff going on in science i mean it's amazing it's happening there my sense is what's missing from a lot of philosophy is the body is that something you resonate with well it's not quite i wouldn't say it that way would you think of the symposium plato <clears throat> yeah that's yeah plato's got it but there is yeah. this distrust of the body there yeah. too isn't there yeah yeah, and the gymnasium, the gymnasium in Athens, and you know the whole thing. All these—they uh, were very, very much into the body. And I, I think uh, when when there's so much talk in, uh, in in our little world about dualism, there are two things I think about about that. One is that dualism did not begin with Descartes. Dualism began with human suffering. <laughs> it's like. You know, the world is a very hard place to be. I mean, it's a very, very hard. Uh, you know, dealing with all of the realities of physicality and uh, suffering and sickness and the uh, how hard it is to live in high and through weather and earthquakes and fires and uh, famines and migrations. And it's very, very hard. What Descartes did, Descartes was very uh, liberating for me because he figured out a way to get around the church. <laughs> you know, Galileo ended up in prison and, and, you know, his buddy Descartes sat there in this nice house in the Sorbonne down the street from the, the Sorbonne. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so it's like I, Descartes to me was a hero. And so it's not, he's not the founder of dualism. And I think dualism is a really an existential human condition. There's a, do you know Yuasa Yasuo's work? I've read some of it mainly through things that you've quoted. Because he he's, was a really important figure because he says dualism is an existential human problem. What's different between East and West is not that. It's that we think of it in the West as we thought about it as an existent, as a, re, a human reality. 
Whereas in Asia, they think about it as a problem to be solved by the by body practices. So they, from their viewpoint, somebody like Heidegger is a person who is thinking gigantic thought, thoughts with the sensitivity of an adolescent. Wow. <laughs> it's not been cultivated through the practices of reading and meditation and martial arts and all of that. And this is this is seems like the nub. The practice is is what changes consciousness. The practice is what changes consciousness. Without the practice, the consciousness remains untethered and unrefined. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's a very very difficult thing in our little world here in California <laughs> uh, to grasp because people take the body practices more as for health, pleasure psychological work whereas what you also is saying well you can't do thought work without it <laughs> your thoughts are not worthwhile unless you really grounded them in breathing moving you know digesting it's absolutely fundamental yeah yeah and i think that's what's so great about you and and on the other side of the atlantic with you and the people in germany is I think that you may, you are doing very great work and bringing that to the fore in a way that's very, uh, I think Husserl was a great guide for that. He saw that problem a lot himself. Um, and to, to um, the, the, this, his great essay in 1938 of uh, the crisis in the social sciences, where the crisis is, the physical sciences have made such enormous progress, but but as far as understanding violence, bigotry, all these kinds of difficult relationships, we've gotten basically very little progress in that realm. And unless we solve that question, uh, we're doomed. <laughs> so it's like one of the things you you wrote about in your book, Body, was that belief systems can be embodied. I found that very powerful. That's certainly true of me. I mean, uh, huge. In the Jesuits, we had so much emphasis on uh, uh, the rules of modesty. I don't know if you know this. St. Ignatius wrote this treatise called The Rules of Modesty, where we, how we were to walk, how we were to hold ourselves, how were we to put our hands, <laughs> all these things. Very that, controlled. A very, very controlled. So there's a, a huge amount of control. And criticism, we had these things called defectus, where periodically we would criticize each other for our bad practices. And we would say, gee, you walk with your hands in your pockets. You're a bad person. Yeah. So would that be a technique of alienation? Absolutely. Yeah, where you're, you're developing a consciousness that is concentrated on form rather than the flow of the, the feeling of the feet on the floor and the joints. At the very beginning, when you introduce this thing we're doing, uh, you mentioned what connects. Uh, it's been a really big, uh, I'd say, rudder for my life is what connects. And I think that there are many people who go at it from different angles, like Reich in his treatment of uh, orgastic movements and central movements, and Charlotte Silver about the, the flow of sensations and. Um, the uh, osteopaths from the cerebrospinous pulsations. So there are all these kinds of really deep currents that kind of carry us forward. Like the, I'm very, very much taken by these 
uh, recent discoveries of the James Webb Telescope and uh, uh, how uh, our understanding of the cosmos within which we're embedded has changed so drastically in the last 10, 20 years, huge change. And there's this kind of bang, <laughs> chaos, I mean, total chaos, <laughs> galaxies, asteroids, nebulae, you know, tiny bits of order somewhere coming in and the black holes taken away. And so, you know, gradually there's a, but in gravity and light and heat, these kinds of deep forces in the cosmos kind of uh, produce every once in a while sources of order and gathering and to get somehow connected at a deep level with those forces, really, really get a sense of them, literally get a sense of where in us, because they're, they're there. I mean, in the osteopathic, I, yesterday I had a session that I've had for years with this person, but it's one of the original, one of the people that's brought back all of the manipulative practices in osteopathy. And they're kind of working with that deep pulsation that is so deep and uh, powerful. So embodiment is not just about getting in touch with our feet, it's about getting in touch with these deep pulses that are ancient in the cosmos. And you mentioned in one of your questions and you're preparing about the, our connection with the earth. I think one of the, the problems about the disaster we're in about global warming is uh, even the people who are the leaders of taking hold of this problem, they don't feel we're part of this. They don't feel we're part of this. It's us that's, that's just being destroyed, not the it out there. It's like, and so to get that connection of, so that we're, we realize the desperation of it, that it's about us, not, not about those trees out there. So how do we how do we come to find that or help people to find that connection? Well, that's certainly been a big question of mine and why, why I started the program. I felt that a particular program we have now, you, you, you left out, we, we, we have a new name. So it's integral transpersonal and somatic psychology. Oh, <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I think those three are really kind of say it in a way, uh, integral in the sense that there's a bond, there's a, a systematic connection between psychology, anthropology, uh, so all these things are connected in, 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 in integral visions. And then transpersonal, there's this vastness of consciousness that comes out of these things. And then somatics be, being the, really, how do you do this through the attention to being there for all of the blood, fluids, joints, movement, all of that. So all of that, that trio is, to me, a very good way of, of showing the work, the nature of the work, that without any one of those, there's problems. <laughs> We need all three, all three strands to come together yeah, to, to three do this work. Together, without you know, people do it in different ways, but uh, certainly without without the content of those three uh, roads ahead, there's there are problems or deficiencies. What this is about is striving to overcome the the, the illusion of separation. Yes, yes, that's a very big problem, and the, the challenge, of course, is. How do you keep both? How do you keep developing my sense of my particular gifts, really, and, and appreciating and crafting a self that uh, harvests all of what I have and am in connection? <laughs> it's a really hard task, you know, hard task. Mm. 
It's finding that balance yeah. between the two. Yeah, and I think that's why both Rogers and Eugene Gendler were so important to me to start out in the field where they, they are working with the matrix of connection. So not just, I'm just not doing this for myself. I'm here to be, so I can be better with other people. I can be more open and uh, responsive. So there's that community dimension that's very important to the whole the whole process. Yeah. And it's one of the, the deadly uh, errors of the West to think knowledge is born out of individuals. These people claiming this is a match, you know, this is my way. I I teach the Johnson method of standing in my shoes for $500 an hour. <laughs> you know, there's an awful lot of that. I mean, capitalism has really worked its way into everything. You've worked with a lot of different somatic practices over the years, haven't you? Started off with with rolfing, was that the first, and then? Uh, yeah, I, one of the great gifts of my life was uh, Michael Murphy, who started Esalen, sort of gave me Esalen as a laboratory. <laughs> so he allowed me to uh, uh, encourage me, actually, to I could just invite anybody I wanted to come there. So I had I could have people from Harvard and UCLA and. Uh, Stanford, place like that, who were cutting edge scientists who would come to Esalen. They would never come to San Francisco because they could already be there. So, but to come to Esalen and to be able to have these private seminars in the old Murphy House was such a special thing that I could get anybody to come. So, we had these fabulous dialogues for about 10 years regularly with uh, scientists and theologians and artists and movement specialists and massage specialists and. Oh pioneers of different methods and so it's been a great gift that that i was given that it was just uh, michael um, really supported what i was up to and saw that it was part of his vision of integralism what were there particular insights that came out of that when these minds came together and the practices would was there something oh, big time <laughs> so yeah i mean the reason that Esalen is so valuable is what an early thing I learned is uh, dinner is a really important revolutionary. <laughs> so these people, they would come and they would, they would be into their this is and that's when they're in their private work rooms, but they all come together in the dining room and they have a good time together. <laughs> and they really enjoy it. Like suddenly so you have a humane thing you know eating together and going to the bath naked which was a big thing every all these people big shots and all naked in the tubs together it's a little hard to be pretentious when you're either at the dinner table or at the, at the bath naked so the i think what's often lacking in the in these institutional worlds is the human environment the work at, at cleaning up the kitchen and crafting meals i mean cooking a meal together so living in this house i don't, I don't have you been to Esalen? do you know i haven't no so the 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 original building there was a hot spring there long ago 100 years ago and then the murphy uh, michael's grandfather built a house there for the family so they own 25 miles along the coast of which Esalen's only this one mile so there's this lovely old house two-story house several bedrooms and to stay in that house with all these great people, the founders of psychoneuroimmunology, the pioneers in uh, neurobiology, and, you know, and the, all these founders of these these disciplines, you know, we're going to the bathroom down the hall from each other and having bed, sharing bedrooms. And 
meals and all that. So it created a human environment for knowledge to kind of bubble up. And, and, uh, and there are some great, you know, very meaningful events. Like one of the things I'm most proud of in my, my, my crafting all this was there were two people that could not be more different. Uh, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen and Emily Conrad. Uh, Emily was this wild, uh, from a Holocaust family and wild and didn't want to have any ideas about anything except just move with, with the cosmos and go to all this. And Bonnie has an extremely complex intellectual system and all that. She's very, and I knew there was something about them that, that, that would that they really shared the same vision which is odd so i brought them together and they just became fast friends right away <laughs> they, they could easily see how they would get together they just loved one another and developed their work together and there are many stories like that where these comings together created something that was unexpected and lots of common ground emerged from those a lot of common ground emerged right and it did have to do with that deep sense of what it means to be human on the earth is there a particular somatic practice that you you find particularly valuable or one that you, you're drawn most to? I love them all. I love them all, basically. It's been helpful for me to have known so much of the origins of them because there's an awful lot of, of popularization that loses the original wisdom. And, I mean, just for example, I, one of the people I really love, I don't know if you know Julio Horvath. Do you know Gyrotonic? No. He's a strange guy from Hungary, I think, who builds these machines. It's like Monty Python. And they're wonderful. They're, they're un unlike Pilates, they're very circular in the ways they so they do a lot of circular, which I need because of my rigid spine. And um, they're just quirky. They're beautiful, beautiful objects. So there was a period in my life when I really had a hard, I mean, I do have a hard time toning myself because of my the rigidity of my spine makes my joints very problematic so this was a big help to me because of all the circularity of movements so i love gyrotonic you know it's not many people do it and it's, it's like i would hate to eliminate that from my recipe of wonderful things so i i just like them all i think it's just such a, i feel so blessed that i got to experience so much of them and still do i mean i still is there a, a kind of an, an underlying foundation or a core somewhere where they all meet together, I wonder? I would say the pulse of the universe. Pulse of the universe, wow. The comings and goings of energetic waves that course through our cells, like the tides. So through sensing into our bodies, we're, we're able to become more aware of these these tides and these pulses. Yeah. 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 And I think that where, where Rolfing was helpful to me is my body, because of all of my early deficiencies, had lots of rigidities built in and calcifications and uh, literal armor. I mean, Reich's idea of armor was very literal in me because of these hard tissues and that are over calcified and dried up. So Rolfing, because of its directness in dealing with connective tissue and loosening all that, liquefying the connective tissues, has been very important for me. For other people, not so much if, uh, uh, you know, movement or Feldenkrais work, things that are less, less assaultive. <laughs> Rolfing is very assaultive <laughs> and directive, um, which I, I needed for my particular history, and I still do. 
so I think people, because of their individuality, find one one train more helpful than another. That that's great. We have so many choices. I think the big problem is discernment. How do people who don't know much about any of these? How do they make discernments? Right. So so helping to guide people to find the particular somatic practice that's going to be best for them. Yeah, and I think that you know it's a work in progress. If you try a lot of trial and error, I think it's a similar problem among spiritual practices. You know, there are a lot of a lot of people hanging out their shingle to be spiritual masters, but uh, where do you go? <laughs> it's like it's a, you know, it's a similar problem. It's a dangerous the world world of consciousness teaching is very dangerous because of the tendency to become a guru. It's very uh, yeah yeah. There's so many aren't there? There's so many people who have very tempting to say, "Oh, I understand the meaning of the meaning of the universe." <laughs> Come and come and study with me and give your life to me and obey everything I say. <laughs> so what what's lovely is several of the some of the, the key people you've mentioned, they don't seem to do that guru thing. Right, they don't. Yeah. Yeah. I like Bonnie, one of the things that's been so great for me to to uh, get to have Bonnie as a friend is if you just read her work, it sounds very dogmatic. If you if you if you go into the blood cells this kind of consciousness unfolds and it's a very mapped out say she takes it so lightly and experimentally and that somebody else might come up with a different map so she's just very very fun about it all it's almost like a cosmic game that she plays and she's you know just not at all a dogmatist and, uh, yeah, sort of playfulness there a playfulness yeah kind of a co which is also one of the great things about us people really fell in love with each other and had fun and rolled on the floor like i remember charlotte seller one day when she was like a hundred kind of so i want to get down and we were all kind of rolling on the floor together she said, i want to get down there on the floor too <laughs> so she got down on top of us all you know there's this hundred year old woman who just barely escaped the camps <laughs> oh such life yeah 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 that's interesting because you today you talk a little bit about and in your writings you talk about the way place yeah. impacts and sounds like Eslam, something about the place was yeah, something about the place. yeah i've often over the years i said somebody tells me oh we start another kind of Eslam up here in in pittsburgh i said well <laughs> The, the Big Sur cliffs and the hot springs, and it's something about that. It's it's the only place in the world that you can do Esplan. <laughs> only Esplan is at Esplan. Yeah, it's hard to get there. It's a journey itself, and it's like, that's part of it. The whole getting the place, and, and and often it's not accessible. It's like most of the winter, it was not accessible. The road totally washed out. So. Mm. You you were writing and said that walking in the streets of Manhattan or spending time on the, the fields of Kansas would be very, very different yeah. ways of thinking, would you say? Yeah. Different yeah. yeah. I mean, again, this would be going back to Yorasa's thing. It's, it's, it, it's a different way of feeling, which then generates different ways of thinking. Like I remember uh, in Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, there's a passage in it where these this uh, couple have managed to get up to New York from living in the South, and they get off at the 125th Street subway in Harlem, and they say, 
oh, moment last. <laughs> you know, and all of us are wanting to get out, but this is a country. It's no, 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 the country is where they have these people shoot us, you know. It's like, yeah. So it's a, such a different place, this place. Yeah, different feeling, different way of thinking. Yeah. yeah. Kind of brings us back to the whole principle of, of there being authentic technologies and sensual that that whole contrast that we touched on earlier perhaps yeah i think it's very hard for people to think of the body as like that um i i several times mentioned my work the work of rudolf serlippa in berlin the body as the first artwork of a culture yeah you know that's an amazing phrase to me it's very rich yeah we constructed the body is constructed by culture. Right away with infant handling practices, you already have started a process going on. The way the infant is held. It just goes on from there. Yeah, schooling and yeah. religion. And... Dance, uh, um, the whole shaman, diet, everything. I mean, it's just... And if you look at it that way, it's like these are all like shaping the body. The way where you sit, the chairs, the design of chairs, but yeah, oh, the whole thing. It's just, so that, that my first book, The Protean Body, I think that was a great title because it really says it, that uh, the idea of the body's fixed. I mean, I'm, I'm very amazed. I mean, to, one of my little amazing gifts right now is that I have found uh, just in the last few weeks, actually, ways to rotate my head on my cervical spine that I had never been able to access before because of all this calcification. And through my trainer, working with my trainer and with my rolfer, I suddenly find this movement that I've never had before. <laughs> and that's pretty, to me, it's kind of amazing. It's really kind of a miracle. It's a tiny thing. It's a very small thing for humanity, but it's really great for me. <laughs> And these ways of freeing up the body change the way we feel and change the way we think. Yeah, that's that's the link that's very hard for people to get. For people to actually grasp the, the reality of that or to, to kind of to do it, to make it real? To, to appreciate that that's happening and to nurture it rather than to just bypass it. Have you seen Oppenheimer? Yes, I have. Yeah, great. So I, 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 you know, I, I lived in... Santa Fe for 10 years and I, I brought many of the people at Los Alamos including the lab director so that whole reality is very palpable to me and it was just shocking in the film that the men never cooked they never took care of the children oh, very telling isn't it yeah and then they go out and they can they can experiment with wiping out 100,000 innocent people in Nagasaki for no reason other than to test their weapons there's something wrong with that kind of thinking it's like it doesn't get taken into the body it's not like a, a gut feeling of of abhorrence it's right. it's blocked oh, what it is to have a child what it is to hold a child how can you destroy with a bomb all these children where is their sensibility there so very much maybe an example of of what happens when there's this te technology of alienation really takes a hold yeah it's a really good example of the techniques of alienation where these men are up there in this plateau and the women are home taking care of the babies and cooking meals and the men are in the lab doing their 
mock-ups of world destruction. The chilling image. It does kind of sum it up, really kind of it like... It really sums it up big time, yeah. Just to kind of lighten the mood a little bit, what would be the flip side? Because in your some of your books, you mentioned some of the positive mm-hmm. ways forward when we do really embrace this mm-hmm. uh, technology of authenticity, something shifts and people can... Something emerges that's precious. Well, pleasure. <laughs> Good relationships. Fun. <laughs> yeah. Overcoming of the tensions that make it hard for us to have a good time together. <laughs> it's simple. Yeah. And community? In community. Yeah. I mean, I think that the tribal people have that sensitivity of these basic things about having meals together and having ceremonies together that are family oriented and meal oriented and uh, nurturing. So I think the, uh, there's something about, um, I mean, I think that's, we, we talk about Oppenheimer, the, the, there's something about getting out of the big earth shattering thinking into how, how do we have a meal together and enjoy it? <laughs> how do we have sex How do, we do without destroying our relationships? I mean, it's like, how do we do this? <laughs> Yeah, just the, going down to the basics of being human. The very basics of being human. Kind of scary. We have to learn these things, isn't it? It's right. <laughs> it's scary, but also interesting to think of our life more grounded in that way. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I'm very grateful for is that both my mother and father were serious cooks. They cooked very differently. My father was into beef and barbecue, and my mother was into kitchen all. But they both raised me cooking. I'm so grateful that they did that. I suppose because cooking has a, an eating together, that's a very sensual experience, isn't it? It brings everything in. It at can one. be. <laughs> ah, can be. It can be, right. Yeah. We uh, just celebrated our 33rd wedding anniversary, and we, we celebrated by going to Chez Panisse, which I've witnessed from the very beginning and with Alice Waters and all that. Everything at Chez Panisse is carefully done to make, make, it, make eating food fabulous. The building is hand-built. There are no nails in the building. It's all crafted. The woods are beautiful. The lighting's beautiful. The staff are fabulous. They're so relational. And the foods are all, you know, fabulous. (laughs) So it's a whole, talk about integralism. Alice Waters had integralism down. She created this whole network of cheese makers and dairy people and (laughs) beef raisers and hog raisers. vegetable raisers <laughs> so the whole thing there it is it's all in one place it's such a pleasure again to see that all happening it sounds like a kind of a ritual in itself yeah yes well the last supper <laughs> yeah, there you go there you go so it does it brings together the element of ritual the sensuality we've touched on the community dimensions in there as well yeah absolutely and kindness and caring that's what emerges from these kind of somatic practices we hope (laughs) Mm, okay no i mean that's why i introduced that idea about the techniques of alienation and authenticity is they can go either way that i was very struck by that point because you sort of think oh yeah these are all the good things these are but you actually made the point that some of them can kind of 
try and create this ideal body that actually is really yeah. unhelpful. Absolutely, more than that. Yes, it could be evil. Actually, <laughs> you know, and also it can feed into narcissism. I have no time for anybody else because I'm too busy doing my my sensory exercises. <laughs> So it's subtle, isn't it? It's a very subtle yeah. work. We need to, to trim very subtle work. Yeah, it, it takes it takes it's it's subtle, right? It's subtle. So we're we're coming towards the, the top of the hour. So I wanted to see whether there was anything that's that's come out of our conversation that you particularly wanted to, to talk about, or is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Well, I think it's a good example of what could easily profitably happen all over the world i mean we we went from zero to 50 on the scale of understanding what needs to be done in this short hour so i think these kinds of conversations are really important so more conversations yeah i think conversation is uh, a, a much um, a, a much uh, neglected alternative to sort of so-called evidence-based practices which i think is a a little frill, frilly to me. <laughs> Talk about evidence-based practices. Conversation is a really well tried out road to the truth. And we're back with Socrates again. Yeah, we're back with Socrates, right? Wonderful. Yeah. We begin and end with uh, yeah, with Socrates. Yeah, lovely to be with you. And thank you, Don. That's been a that's been a pleasure to to explore and investigate and, and hear some of your fabulous stories. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. And thanks to everybody who's listening. And I hope you enjoyed that episode. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time.